Let's get into God's Word. We are right now in the middle of our series. Actually, we are now cresting the two-thirds point of our, our summer series, The Names of God, in which we've been going through uh, the Scripture and, and seeing different names of God in the Old Testament, how God has revealed Himself to us. And the reason that we're doing that is we say we are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. And what do disciples do? They follow Jesus. That's what we do. That's what a disciple does. And so as we looked at that, we have to ask, where, where is Jesus going? Well, Jesus has said his, his mission and his ministry, he wants to glorify God, get to know him better, to enjoy him fully. And if we really want to go there, follow Christ, we need to know who God is more fully. And so we're looking into the scripture and to the different names, how God has revealed himself to us so we get to know him better. And I think it's amazing because of who God is and because of just the nature of how he made things, the more we get to know him, there's a lot of practical ways that that influences how we live. And so I hope that you've been enjoying this. Uh, and today we have the name, one of my very favorite is Yahweh M. Kaddish. It's one of my favorites because it is so fun to say. And also because of what it means. And what it means is he is the God who makes us holy. And so the verse, one of the places of scripture that we find this is going to be our memory verse today. Which we always have a memory verse because disciples of Jesus know God's word. And it says Leviticus 20 verse 8. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And so this is how we're going to memorize it. We're just say it together a couple times and then... Uh, we will test ourselves, and you'll have a good start. So here we go. Say it with me. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Leviticus 28. All right, this time with some passion. I keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Leviticus 28. Oh, you guys sound good. Good. All right, let's test ourselves right now. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Leviticus 28. Awesome. That is a very powerful verse. I'm going to tell you how this verse helped me this week because I had the privilege of knowing in advance what it was going to be. This week, I'll tell you, right now, things are going really good. Things are happening well at the church. Things are happening really well at my house, right? It, like my home. Like this is a time in life where I'm just in between storms. It's, it's been good. And yet, all week long, the enemy's been coming at me and telling me that I am worthless, that I'm the worst pastor ever, that I'm not good enough. I'm not being like one of those people on Facebook that's fishing for compliments. I get this. This is a lie. But the enemy's coming at me all week long. Like, all week, just to get to work was like the hardest thing. Cause just, just feeling like just a failure. Have you ever been there? I'll tell you what, the enemy talks about a little bit of truth. The reality is, is I am. I am insignificant, but God is my significance. Right? The reason that I am qualified is because he is the God who makes me holy. He is the God who has called me here, and I'm doing what he asked me to do. Keep his commands and decrees and follow them. i got to be faithful. And as long as I'm faithful, God's going to be faithful and do what he needs to do. This verse was a shield for me this week. It's what got me out of bed and brought me here. It's what got me to my knees to pray for you. It's what allowed me to do what God called me to do. That's the power of God's word. You've got to start on it right now. You've already started to memorize it. This verse is just as powerful and true for you. So take out that memory verse, that little card. Put it in your pocket. Put it in your wallet. Start to set that, tattoo it to your heart. So when the enemy comes against you, and he will, you can defeat him with God's word. That's the power of it. And let's talk about this God, this amazing God who, who is our Yahweh M. Kaddish, the one who makes us holy. If you got your Bibles, turn them to Leviticus 20. 
if you forgot your Bible or just, uh, uh, just don't need one, whatever, we've got plenty of them in the back, in the little bookshelf back there. You can use one. If you need a Bible, keep it, our gift to you. Now, Leviticus chapter 20, is a, you'll notice Leviticus is in the beginning of the Bible. It's in the, one of the first five books that's in there. And so uh, it's in the Old Covenant. That's God's covenant with Israel. It's in the Old Testament there. One of the first five books, sometimes called the Pentateuch, it's the books of Moses. It's the books that God gave Moses to write God, um, while, while the people of Israel were between Egypt and before they made it to the promised land, when Moses met with God in the tent of meeting and all that, when he, when he met with God and God allowed him and, and he said, this is, this is my scripture for your people. This is the way of my law. So we call those sometimes the book of the law. Although some of the books of the law have a lot more to do with history than law, like Genesis and Exodus. They have some law in Exodus, but mostly it's like history. Leviticus is a little different. It is actually a book of law. It was written to the Levitical tribe, which is why it's called Leviticus. Right? Scripture is so complicated. And it says here, Leviticus, the Levitical tribe, were the priestly tribe. Right? Moses was part of the tribe of Levi. Right? It was a Levitical tribe. And Aaron, his brother, clearly was too. And the Levitical tribe, what their job was, is to be the priests. They're the ones, and in a theocracy, which God set up, he was the king, right? Then the priests also kind of handled all of the laws, the civic, the civic laws as well, the civil laws as well as the religious laws. And so with God's covenant with his people, it contains both. And the book of Leviticus basically contains the law, the covenant, the contract that God has made with his people. And so if you read Leviticus, it's like reading a law book. It's about that interesting. But it's important stuff. Right? This is what set God's people apart. Now, it's an important thing to realize that this, because it was a book that was written to Levitical priesthood, this is for a people who were already redeemed. God gave this book, Leviticus, to God's chosen people. Right? It's not a book for those who are wondering if they should be redeemed or how. This is for a book that's saying this is the way that God is making you holy. This is not how to become God's chosen people. This was a book for God's chosen people. This is how he wanted them to live. And in that way, it's a book of life. It's how to live. And so oftentimes, I think people, we, we look at the, the Old Testament and the law, and, and sometimes we, we get it wrong. Sometimes we, we look at it and we say, oh, I don't think that it's, a, this, it's bondage. It's only bondage if we apply it the wrong way. Look at the context. When did God give the people the law? Right after he set them free from bondage, slavery in Egypt. He did not set them free only to bondage, put them right back into bondage, into slavery. He gave them this book, these rules, this new call them as a people so they could live as free people under him. It's an amazing thing. The law becomes bondage when we go to it in the wrong way. Now remember, this was a covenant that God made with the people of Israel. We are the new covenant that we're part of now. Right? That's what we celebrated just a couple minutes ago with, with communion. There was a new covenant in Christ's blood. Right, We're part of the new covenant. And therefore, there are some things in the old covenant, some terms and stuff that, that don't directly apply to us. That's why, like, in the here, you're going to read about the sacrificial system, about bringing bulls, you know, making sacrifices, bulls and goats. We don't do that anymore. Why? Because Christ fulfilled that. We're part of a different covenant. But there's a lot of moral things in here that, that still apply. And you know what? There's also... In here, you can read what God, he's calling his people to be a holy people, a holy lifestyle. He wanted his people, the purpose of calling Israel out wasn't that he was just playing favorites and he loved them more than the rest of the world. 
He was calling them out, separating them for a purpose, for a reason. They were to represent him. And I think in the book of Leviticus, as you read this, you will see kind of what it looks like. What is, what is requirement, not so much as following, you know, not wearing cotton poly blends, but the heart, the attitude of saying, we're going to be different. I'm going to live a different way because of whom I represent. It's a book of holiness. A holy and explains a holy lifestyle. To understand that, to understand that context, I'm going to read for you the first eight verses of chapter 20. Right? I invite you to do that. But first, we're going to read the last verse of chapter 19 because it sets the context for this. It says, in 1937, it says, Keep all my decrees and follow my laws. I am the Lord. That's what it says. It begins. It says, Keep all of my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord. All of them. Why? Because that just makes sense. Most of us are Americans. And as citizens of the United States, do we have to obey all of the laws? Yeah, all of the laws. And that's a good thing. Can you imagine if it was just like our government said, you know, you can follow your, your top 80%. The chaos that we would have. But it's not just because that's the way our government works. It's the way that everything works in life. Think about your house. I got a son. He just turned 13 this week, which teenagers are awesome, by the way. And, and so I got him at my house, and uh, we have a, di- a way of some rules for the house. There are ways that we do things. Thomas doesn't get to obey 90% of the rules. And the same thing for me. There was a certain way that we live. These are the expectations to be part of our family. This is how we live. And there's accountability we don't, but that's part of being the house. It's, we all agree or how about this? So most of us have jobs. Can you imagine? You have a job. You work for your employer, and you're like, I see all of the things, the expectations that you have for me. It's on my job description. I'm going to do 99% of those. But that 1%, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to do that. You wouldn't be employed very long, or else you wouldn't be getting many raises. Or if you have employees, if they want to follow just a certain number, whatever they feel comfortable following, that they would have problems, right? We follow all of it. God's calling his people. He's calling a people out. And he says, listen, if you're going to be my people, you're going to be my people. And so part of following it, God has to say, which is not unreasonable. He says in verse 20, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. That's pretty heavy. Now understand There's some depth into this. When God brought the people out of the promised land, okay, after um, there was Abraham, Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob, God renamed Israel. Israel had the 12 sons, 12 tribes, right? And then there was the famine, and God brought them out of the promised land and put them in Egypt. He promised that he would bring them back. But he brought them out, and of course, eventually they became slaves. But during that time, he said the people who lived there in Palestine, in the promised land, that he was letting their, their sin reach to its fullest mark. Because there was going to have to be a cleaning of house when they came back. And so God let those cultures do what they wanted to do. With no law, no restraint. Let the people do what they felt was right. And the depravity of humanity led to some horrific things. To the point at which God said there was a point of no return. A point at which those cultures had to be completely eliminated. Same thing happened in the world before the flood. The same thing happened with Sodom and Gomorrah when a culture became so corrupt that God then brings judgment. 
Well, one of the things that these culture had done in those intervening years when Israel was down in Egypt is they started worshiping a god in a horrible way. And we've now found these. They built these big statues, and uh, they had these arms that are kind of out like this. And then they entered the belly of the statue, which is a, like a god. They would, um, they would put fire in there, and they would, it's a huge furnace, and they would get it glowing, glowing hot. And then what they would do is they would take their children up to age seven and they would bind them and roll them down the arms of this so-called God alive and burn their children alive as an offering to Molech. And that wasn't just what the fringe did. It became what was common. And God says, this is wickedness. And he says, anybody who does that (laughs) will be cut off completely. And he's not talking about the people in the promised land who were right at that time still living there. He was talking to his people and said, when you take this land, don't you dare go back to that wickedness. It was one of the reasons why God eliminated them, destroyed their cultures completely. It was bad. That was common. And to to realize that it is common in all of us that we have a sin nature. That without God, we unspool. And we look down our noses at cultures like this who eventually would burn their children alive, but it was a gradual set of steps where people did what was right in their own eyes and worshiping the way that they thought they should worship and worshiping God the way that they thought God should be worshiped and making God in their image and then worshiping a God in such a horrible way that they did horrible, horrible things. We are no better. And God says to them, his people, you're called by my name. When you go there, do not do this. And he goes on to explain why. He says, the members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. There's a reason why God said to his people, if you do this, You're going to be cut off. And the reason was this. He says, because you represent me. God is holy. He is different. That's what that means. Set apart, kept special. There's nothing like him. And God said, if you are called by my name and you start worshiping the way that the rest of the world worships, I get painted with that brush. You make me common. And I am not a God like that. And so if you want to bear my name, then you honor my name. That's the expectation. He goes on to say, what about the people that don't do this, but they allow others to? Well, he says this. If the members of the community close their eyes when a man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people, together with those who follow him in prostituting themselves to Molech. Now, the pronouns there are difficult, so I had to go look it up. Who is he talking about? Who is the him he cuts off? It's the person who sees the other person sinning and does nothing. By turning a blind eye, they became guilty of the same sin. By not standing up for God's holiness and allowing another holy person that was called by God's name to defile God's name and allowing it to happen, God said, now you are just as guilty and you too shall be cut off. And he says, anybody else who also would 
would draw in with that prostitution. We recognize that God's holiness is very important. And I think that's what he's speaking to his people. Our worship to God has got to be holy. He goes on. He says, I will set my face against anyone who turns to medians and spiritists or to prostitute themselves in following them. I will cut them off from their people. It wasn't just doing this horrible practice of burning their children alive. God said, listen, you are mine. Worship me in truth. God is not a God that just coexists with other gods. He is not just one amongst many. He is the Lord. He is the creator. Nothing exists other than him. There is no such thing as Allah. There is no such thing as some big force out there. The universe doesn't care about you, but God does. He is different. He is actually the creator of the universe. He is not on par with anyone or anything. He is not one deity amongst many. He is the deity, and he will not be treated as anything less. His throne has room for him. And that's it. And God said, if you come to me, then come to me. But if you want to just play, you know, you want to have a smorgasbord of what parts you want to follow of me, then I will have nothing to do with you. You can eat at my table or you can eat in the cold, but you cannot have both. You are either in my kingdom or you are not in my kingdom. That is the way that it is. And so he says it was common in the time that people would go to mediums and spiritists to try to find something. God said, you do not pollute my name that way. This is not how I work. And then he goes on and he tells them what to do. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Be consecrated. Set yourself apart. And say, this is something, I'm used for something special now. I'm not going to be used for something different. So just consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord, Yahweh M. Kadesh, the Lord who makes you holy. That's a powerful thing. There's a reason why we do this. Right? There's a power to this that God, his holiness matters to him. And therefore it should matter a little bit to us. God's holiness is not a joke. When Jesus was talking to the woman at, at the well, and John, uh, when, when he goes and he meets with this woman, she is a, she's just a mess. She's a Samaritan. Her family and her, her history had kind of messed up, polluted God's uh, law and his way and all that. And he meets with her, and he says something powerful to her. It, it's such grace and kindness, but truth. He said, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Must. God said, if you're going to come to me, come to me in truth. Come to me as I am. Don't worship the, one, the God that you want to invent. Worship the God as I've revealed myself. Worship me in truth. It is our responsibility to come to God. He has revealed himself as truth in Scripture, in Christ. Now it is our responsibility to seek out and to find out who this God is so we can come to him in spirit and in truth because he is holy. He is not like others. And his holiness is not a joke. Now, M. Kaddish, we see in Scripture, is a, it's, it's not something that, you know, to be made holy. It's not something that God just lightly puts in the Bible just in this passage and never talks about again. No. M. Kaddish is found over 700 times in the Old Testament alone. God would be saying, be set apart, be made holy. This is something that's a big part of the walk of a, of a different kind of people. And it to be, to be made holy does mean to be set apart, to be kept special, 
The same idea, same concept of to sanctify, we read about in the New Testament, where it's, we use Greek instead of Hebrew. But to sanctify, where we get the word saint, is a person who has been made holy, who has been set apart, kept special. That's what it means. And I know those sound like religious words, so let me put those things into common everyday things. Because holiness is not something that only exists in, in, in the church. Holiness is part of life. Right? For example, you see over here, you see this lovely guitar right here? That's Zach's guitar. That is not a common everyday guitar. I don't just walk out in the middle of the day, right, when I'm working, I get bored. I don't just come out here and just pick up that guitar and be like, right? It's set apart. It's special. Zach's got all the little knobs and dials or whatever just the way that he wants them, Right? If I was to come out and treat it as a common everyday thing, I would be defiling his instrument, not keeping it holy. Or in my house, I have got a closet in which we have these dishes that have been passed down from generation to generation in my wife's family. And, and they, they're only to be used if the queen stops by. I, <laughs> like, we've never used them, ever. Right? And yet, that we, we don't just eat on them for, for normal dinners, for common everyday things. That's not what they're for. They're kept holy. They have been, they've been consecrated. We set them aside. I've got tools in my garage that are consecrated. They are, they are set apart from all my other tools to be used only for very specialized things. Now, I've got some other tools in my garage that are pretty common. But there's these special ones. Like when I'm, I've got these ones for carving my pipes. They're expensive, and they're hard to maintain, and they got super sharp blades and all these kinds of things, and it's really fun. But I don't use them for anything else, and nobody better come to my garage and use them for anything else, right? Somebody wants to borrow a tool, not these. They're consecrated. They're special, and they're kept separate in their own little box and everything. They're kept holy. Your car is holy unto thee. Did you ever think about that? Your car is not just out in the parking lot where anybody just willy-nilly can come and jump in and just take your car for a spin. If they did, they'd get in trouble, wouldn't they? Because it's set apart, kept special for you. You paid for it. Holiness is part of life. And God said, I have set you apart. You are to be made, kept holy. So some things we want to talk about today about M. Kaddish, about being made holy. And the first thing we have to recognize is this, that God is the Holy One. The reason that God can make us holy is that he himself is holy to begin with. That God is not like us. That's what it means. He's set apart. He's different. He's special. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah was given entry, access through the Spirit into the very throne room of God. Can you imagine? Well, we don't have to. He wrote it down. What did he see? Isn't that amazing? That's what we get to read there. What does it look like in the throne room of God in heaven? And in that wonderful story, we see God in his, in the, his throne, and we see just this amazing, uh, just Basically, a sea of worship around him. And we, one of these things that we see are these angels, these powerful beings that are hovering around his throne. They're flying there. They have six wings. And with two of them, they're covering their eyes. And two, they're covering. So they don't, they don't, they, the God is too holy to even look at for them. Too different, too special. Even though they're in his presence, they don't even dare to look at him face to face. And they have two other wings, and they just cover their feet up because they don't want to you know, offend God with their toes, I guess. And then... The other two wings are flying. They don't even want to touch the ground because the ground is holy. But they want to be close to this holy God. And this is what it says that these beings are doing. Right now it says, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You know, this is amazing. People wonder, what is God like? He is holy. Those that see him, those that are actually there, say this, holy. And you know, isn't it cool in the Old Testament? 
how many times that the, the scripture that God gives us nods to the Trinity? That, that in, in, the, in, the, in the, even the throne of God, God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. That's so cool. That our God is holy by nature. That is, what, anything that they could have said about God, these angels that fly around his throne, they say this, they proclaim his holiness. He's different. He's kept special. God the Son is also holy when Jesus came to earth, right? Because God the Son existed before he was born of Mary. But when God came to earth, Mary said, how is this going to happen? And this is what the angel said. It says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus, how did the angel even describe Jesus? The very first thing, it says he's the holy one. He's different. Jesus is not like any other. He's not just like a prophet. He's not just a religious man. He's not even like other angels. He is the holy one. Sounds a lot like God, because he is. Something so special about Jesus that makes him different than anything else or anyone else is the fact of the matter is that he holds a dual nature that blows up our brains. He is 100% God at the same time he is 100% human. Can you figure that out? No. One of the evidences is that we didn't invent our faith. We always invent things that we can wrap our brain around. If we invented Jesus, we would say he's 50% God and 50% human or something. But he's all God and all person. That's amazing. He's not like any other. Muhammad wasn't God. Joseph Smith wasn't God. I'll tell you what, Jesus is God. And the, and the Jesus of Joseph Smith says that, well, he's a God just like you and me are gods. He's just more fully realized. But Jesus isn't like that. He's all God, and he's all man, and the two are very, very different. Because God is holy, 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 and somehow Jesus manages to be holy God and also completely human. That's amazing. This is why Jesus, there is no substitute for Jesus. There's no other like him. The fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man allowed him to be perfectly suited to do his ministry here on earth. He came to seek and to save, didn't he? It says in scripture that the penalty for sin is death. Death is the absence of one life. How many lives do you have? I'm not a cat. I got one. Problem is, I've sinned more than once. If the penalty for sin is death, that's one life. And I've sinned probably this morning more than that because I know how hard it is to get to church, right? You all there, you're with me. I can't even pay back my own sin. Hell is forever. That's why. And yet, Jesus, being a man, he could die. He could lay down his life. But being God, he doesn't just have one life. He's infinite life. Now, here's a cool thing. I've sinned a lot. And you all have two. We can all just admit it. But we've never sinned infinitely. We couldn't. Even all of the sins of all people for all time are still a finite number, isn't it? Well, infinity minus anything, anything finite, is still what? Infinity. That's why Jesus' death, when he laid down his life on the cross, was enough to pay for all of our sins. You can't outsin God's sacrifice. You can't do it. But it's also why God is a God of justice. Like if you go to the grocery store and you buy $10 worth of groceries and you give them a 20, you get change back, don't you? If you don't, it's not just. God's a just God. Jesus overpaid, so he gets his change back. That's why he got infinity life back. That's the brilliance of God. (laughs) Only Jesus could do this. But not only Jesus could pay the penalty for our sin, only Jesus could understand us in our weakness to give us the mercy we need. 
And only Jesus could stand before God the Father and plead for us on our behalf because he doesn't have sin. He is perfect. He is God. He could talk to God on pier. He's perfectly God, perfectly man. He's different. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about this, about Jesus being that high priest for us to be able to represent us before God. It says, such a high priest, Jesus, truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This is who Jesus is. He's holy in his position. He is the high priest. There wasn't lots of high priests, by the way. There was like, you always have one high priest. If any other priest tried to go and do the high priest job, he would walk into the Holy of Holies and die. There was only one guy for the entire nation that was qualified to, to do the work of the high priest. And now there is one high priest who lasts forever. That's why we don't need a new one. That's it. He's holy in his position. It's different. High priest was a set of parts, kept special. It was not just like any other priest. He is holy. Look at here, in his character. It says here he's holy. He's blameless. He is pure. He's set apart. There's no sin in him. There's nobody who can bring, uh, can you say he did anything wrong? He is pure, absolutely pure. He's not like us. All people are broken, but Jesus is not. Not only is he, he, he's got his position, he's got his character, but the third one, look at his authority. He's set apart from sinners. Jesus is not just another person who then just, you know, he's just like another guy. Yeah, he is a human, but he is also fully God, which is why, unlike any other human, we worship him and it is right that we do so. And yet, it also says he's exalted above the heavens. Jesus is not just like an angel who came down. It says, we sang this song today, that, that even at the name of Jesus, that the demons run and flee. He is not on par with just another angelic being. He's not one amongst many up there who are glorified beings, who are enlightened, who came down. He is not like what they call like a Buddha. He is above them. All of the angels, they worship him. Even those that have the most power and authority, those that are allowed to be closest to him on his throne, cover their eyes, cover their feet, and don't even dare touch the ground. He is holy, above them all. Jesus is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy. It's even in his name. Look what it says. John 14, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I said to you. When referring to the Holy Spirit, there was no better way that Christ could explain him other than this, that he is holy and he is spirit. He is different. He is other pretty amazing the holy spirit is not common the holy spirit is not something you can get through a median it's not something you could get through any other place you, the holy spirit is god all of god and all god amazing breaks our brain so if god is holy what about us we're not we're common this is why we have the second thing that god is also the holy maker it's part of who he is he is holy 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 but god also is the holy maker think of it, it makes sense there are holy things, aren't there? Well, if God made everything, both holy and common, God is the one who made the things holy. There is no way to be made holy if God does not make you holy. That's what it means to be the creator. So God makes things holy, and he did it right from the very beginning. We show that this is part of his very nature. It's who he is. At the very beginning of creation, God made a day holy. It says in Genesis 2, right, the creation story, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God took something as common and ordinary as a day, and he says, this day is different. It's kept special. It's kept separate. It's unique, which is why we keep Sabbath. It is special. God made it so. And God was so good at making a day holy that he made other days holy. We call them holidays or holidays. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 23, in this book of the law, God sets about there's going to be some holidays for the people of Israel. 
And this is what he says about them. He says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Sacred, kept separate, different. He made holidays. First time we find a history, I think it's great. And in here, he talks about some different special days that he sets up the people. The first one was, was first harvest. When, when the people who went into the, whole, the, the promised land, they brought in their harvest. The first thing they were supposed to do after the very first day of harvest, they bring an offering of that to the Lord. They say, this is yours, God. The rest of the fields are still ripe for harvest. They haven't been harvested yet. But the very first day, while the rest of the work is still to be done, the very first thing they do is they trust God. They say, God, this is yours. And then God gives them some time to work. And he says, you have seven weeks plus a day, which is about 50 days, if you do math. And then he says, you're going to have a harvest fest because it's party time. Right? And so then after the harvest is done, then he has another special day. It's time to, to refresh and to say, yay, God, for doing everything you've done. You brought in the harvest. How awesome is that? Well, people of Israel still celebrate this. Well, they, they call it, uh, I think it's Shavuot. I'm going to say it wrong because I don't speak Hebrew. But that's what it looks like when I read it on my calendar because it's still celebrated. We, of course, would know it by a different name, Festival of Weeks, some Bibles, but Pentecost. Why? Because of 50, 50 days, Pentecost, still around. Another special day that comes next, he talks about in this passage, he says to keep holy, was the Festival of Trumpets. The time that they would blow a shofar and it would, throughout the land, the people would then start what they called the 10 days of awe. The time that, of, of self-reflection and of purification of themselves to prepare themselves for what comes next. And that's the next day of uh, Holy Day, is the Day of Atonement. Now, the, the day of, of Shavuot, or sorry, the day of, of uh, the trumpets is uh, called Rosh Hashanah. Have you ever seen that on your, your calendars? Still celebrated. Then we have the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement is a day that the high priest would make the sacrifice that we read about in Leviticus to cover the sins of all of the people of Israel, that they would be saved by God's grace until Jesus came and actually paid off all of those, those sins. Pretty amazing. And then the last one that he talks about in this chapter is that the Festival of Tents, which I think is the most fun. The people would go and they'd pitch a tent out in their backyard. And they would stay in it for a while, and they would celebrate the fact that it was a reminder that they were set free from Egypt, and they were no longer slaves. It was, a, it was a tent party. And in the Bible, they call it tabernacles. We read about the, the Festival of Tabernacles. Um, I think in modern days, it's called like Sukkot. It's still celebrated. Now, you'll notice that every one of those holidays, except one, is still celebrated. The only day that we don't have in the modern calendar is the Day of Atonement. And why? Because Jesus fulfilled it. He was the sacrifice of atonement. It's not needed anymore. Oh, that's pretty cool. But the point is this, that God can take days. He can make, take time. He can even take days and make them holy. But he does more than that. He can make things holy too. Not just time, but things itself. Leviticus 20, let's look at this. Let's talk about the most common thing that all of us have, a paycheck. Right? When God brings us, you, all of us need one, right? So it's something that's common amongst all people. And God can even take that and make something holy of it. It says, a tithe, the 10% of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. It's supposed to be kept separate, special. God can take something as simple as, as an income and can make part of it holy. He said, 10% of it is mine. It's different. It's set apart. So much so that when people don't do that, in the Old Testament, he says, you are robbing me. Why? Because it's, you are treating holy money as common money. And there's nothing wrong with common money. It buys bread and milk and all those other things. But he said, the first 10% is mine. Keep it holy, just like the first part of the week is kept holy. We have 
God can make things holy, but not just our money. He can make actual physical things holy too, and he has. Think about the Ark of the Covenant, right? It was a really pretty box, but that's all it was. It was just a really pretty box. God made it holy. I tell you, if, if, if the Persians made the Ark of the Covenant, same thing like that, it wouldn't be holy. There was a recreation of the temple that had a recreation of the ark that was built to its specifications that came through the front range a couple years ago. I was able to walk down, look at that ark. I could have touched that ark and not die. Why? Because that ark wasn't holy, even though it was made the exact same way. The reason the ark of the covenant was holy, because God made that ark holy. And the reason he made it holy is because he rested above it. It was his. I think one thing that we found in scripture that God made holy, which is really interesting, is that he doesn't just make things holy, he makes places holy too. Look at this. We're going to go in 10 months. We're going to go to the Holy Land. There's a reason we call that. It's different. It's set apart. Even now, thousands of years later, we still call it the Holy Land. And God says to Zechariah, he gives a prophecy to Zechariah. He says this, the Lord will inherit Judah, his portion of the Holy Land. God himself even calls that land special, set apart, different. And even today, I think you don't have to be a Christian or a Jew to recognize there's something special about that part of the world. That's pretty amazing. God made land holy. And he makes places holy too. The place on earth that there used to be was called the most holy space. There was the, the tabernacle, right? And in the back of it was a, was a little sectioned off place where God put his Ark of the Covenant was there. And it was a very special place. And God called it, it was so special, he called it the most holy place. In fact, only one person was authorized to even go into that room. If anybody else walked into that room, it would desecrate the room and they would die. Right? It's, it's a place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the high priest would go in once a year, and that's it. And he would go in, and he would make the atonement for the people. He would sprinkle the blood that was shed for the people so the forgiveness of their sins, or at least that, that they could be, be rolled back. Isn't it amazing? This was a very holy space. And this space was so holy that even though only one human being had the right to even enter it, God said to the, that guy couldn't just enter whenever he wanted. Look what God says to, about this. In Leviticus 6, he says... Uh, The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, he was the first high priest, that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy space or place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover of the ark, or else he will die. Now that place was very holy. It was very different. It's supposed to be very much set apart. God said, even though there's only one human that has access, he doesn't access whenever he wants. And the reason was this. God says in the very next sentence, he will die because God says, I, myself, my glory will be manifest above the ark. I will be there. God made that space holy. That's pretty amazing. See, God makes times holy. He makes places holy. He makes things holy. But you know what's cool is he makes people holy too. That's what a saint means, a sanctified person, one who's made holy. And he started by making a nation holy. In Leviticus 20, he tells the people of Israel, this is the nation of Israel, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from other nations to be my own. How special. God says to the people of Israel, don't act like the rest of the world anymore. You're not like them. You are mine, and therefore act like you're mine. He takes an entire nation. It wasn't because the nation deserved it. No, they were a bunch of slaves in Egypt. Most of them, a lot of them, were still worshiping the old gods of Egypt. Remember, the first thing they did when they come out of the land and they wonder where Moses is, is they build a, a golden calf. It wasn't that the people were all these awesome people. They were just people. But God made them special. He said, I choose you, and I make you holy. And he did. Now he says, you you act like it. Be different. He takes a nation. He is the holy maker. He made a holy nation out of very common people. You know, and God continues to do this work in the church. 
1 Corinthians 1, 2, it says, the church of God, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, right, made holy in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. See what he's saying? There was this church in Corinth. And that little church in Corinth, God said, through the Holy Spirit and Paul, he says, those people are sanctified. Now, were the people in Corinth like awesome, just perfect saints? No, read Corinthians. They were, they were messed up. Some of the things that they were doing wasn't all that great. They weren't made holy because they were acting holy. God made them holy. And now here's the cool thing. It says they're called his holy people. They bear his name, the church in Corinth, even though they were imperfect. God said, you are mine, I made you holy, and I call you holy. You're supposed to represent me. But then it goes on, because we're not in the church of Corinth, but we are in the church. It says, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus. That applies to us. You call in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are called to be his holy people. This isn't that God replaced Israel, he grafted us in. We read that in, in, in Romans 9 through 11. It's an amazing thing that God allows us now to be part of his holy people. Amazing, separate, set apart, bearing his name, bearing his image. And that's what the church is. That's why I get so irritated when people talk bad about the church. This is not just an, a regular assembly. This is a sacred assembly. This is special what we get to do here right now. We get to come together and God made us something amazing. He actually calls us his body and his bride. He calls us his family. This is like nothing else. Being his church is different. This is why we keep it special. This is why there may be a thousand other things in the world that we can do once a week, but God says, keep the assembly sacred. He said, even to the, to the Hebrews, even if their people are, are going to kill you for coming, he says, don't neglect the assembly. Why? Because it's not just about you. We represent Jesus. We come together. This is special. And you are beautiful. And God has done something amazing here. He called us from our ordinary lives, from being you know, busy dads and soccer moms and all the things that you've been called us to. And he says, no, I'm making you something much better. I'm going to call you more than an employee. I'm going to call you something so much bigger. You're going to be part of my kingdom. This is what we can be part of. This is why this is priority. This is because God is here and he's doing something. He's made us holy, a holy people. But you know what? God doesn't just make us in general holy. He makes us individually holy too. This part blows my mind. It says here, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Right? It says that God's spirit dwells within your midst. Remember back to the most holy place? Why was the most holy place so most holy? God said his spirit would be there. It dwells there. That space that God's spirit dwelled was so holy that even the high priest... Even if he did all of the right things, if he entered that space at the wrong time, he would still die because God's spirit was there. And then God put his spirit in you. You are a most holy space. Let that sink in for a second. What would terrify the high priest when he would enter the most holy space? This is what they would do. Part of his garments is they would tie little bells on him and a rope around his ankle. Because even though he only went once a year, if he went in there and he was not pure, or he went in the wrong way or did something wrong, he would die. Well, they couldn't go in to retrieve him or they would die too, and that would be bad. So they tie these little bells on him so that when he walks in, he's like, oh, I hope I'm good, right? And he's terrified. And when you're terrified, you jingle. And then when you die, you stop jingling. Because dead people don't do this. And so what they would do is and they would drag his dead body out by the cord that they tied around and they get a new high priest. And they were like, you go in. (laughs) 
you have that same holy God in you. You understand how holy God has made you. It's just remarkable. God is the holy maker, and he didn't do it because you deserved it. He didn't do it because you were good enough. He did it because he is God, and he chose you, and he said, I'm making you holy. And how does he do that? It's through Jesus. Jesus is our Yahweh and Kaddish, always has been. And when we look in sanctification in Scripture, there's, there's three ways, three aspects of sanctification we find in Scripture. The first one is justification. It's the way that God makes us holy. It's was process called, it's called justification. And that's where we go from guilty to, to forgiven. Right? The second aspect is progressive. Right? And that's where we go, from, um, we call it sanctified usually in Scripture. And that's where we go from wicked right, until we become righteous. So we see sins in our life start to be worked out, and there's this transformation that happens in this. And lastly, there's a permanent sanctification that God makes us holy, and we call that glorification in Scripture. You see it there. It's where we go from being a sinner, a, a broken person, to being a saint. Right? How does that happen? Well, let's talk about real quickly how Jesus does this. The first one is the positional sanctification. They're called salvation, right? Justification. How does it happen? Well, Jesus' sacrifice made that possible. We already talked about how that worked. Jesus' death paid the price so of our sins, we were guilty. God paid for that price. So now it's been paid. We are no longer guilty. It's an amazing thing that Jesus did for. He paid the price for our redemption. In Romans chapter 10, how does it apply? It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise. It's not might be, might if, you will. Because it's a justification issue. God paid the price. If I go to Subway and I pay for my sandwich, they will let me leave with it every time. God paid the price. You will be saved. For it is with your heart you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. That's an amazing thing. Right? How does that happen? Well, it says here in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. That we are saved by grace means we didn't deserve it. We can't ever earn salvation. There's no Christian that is good enough to earn it. That's the point. That's why it's grace. It has to be a gift. How do we receive it then? Through faith. And the amazing thing about faith is it's not just this nebulous thing that floats about. Faith has action. That's why in Scripture it says that faith without works is dead. Basically, that's not really faith. For example, if you think your pants are on fire, you have faith that your pants are on fire. You're going to do something, aren't you? It will cause action. Because if you really believe your pants are on fire and you don't do anything, you don't really believe your pants are on fire. In the same way, it says if we believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, there are things in Scripture, ways in Scripture God tells us he wants us to have to demonstrate that faith. He wants that faith to make us do something. And what are those things? First is believe. It means to trust God even when we have doubts. We're going to believe. We're going to trust him that he did die for our, for our sins, that he is saving us. Then when he tells us another thing that we need to confess. Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Identify with him. Agree with God on this. There's repentance. That's, that's the part of discipleship where it says to, to learn to obey all of Christ's commands. That's discipleship, following him. That's an act of faith. If you're not following Jesus out of an act of faith, then you're just being legalistic, and it's not going to change you. But if you're doing it as an act of faith, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? When there's also baptism. Baptism is an act of faith in Scripture. It says do this as an appeal to God for clean conscience. If it's not by faith, it's just a weird bath. right? But as faith, it's powerful. I mean, all of these things, God says, express your faith, even in discipleship, as we continue to grow in him, acts of faith. We're saved by God's grace through faith. That is, a, that is a work of God that he does. He brings us from being guilty to innocent. And when that's done, our soul is saved. Isn't that awesome? But aren't you glad God doesn't leave you there? Can you imagine if Christians were just saved and then we just had the same stinky inside spirit? 
It would be horrible. See, then he leads us to the next part, which is progressive sanctification. He, he begins to transform us from the inside out. And this is where we live right now. For those of us who are in Christ, this is the process that's at work with us. This is why if you look in your own life and you are not changing, you are not more holy today, you are not more righteous today than you were a year ago, there is something wrong. This is why if, if you as a Christian, you can look across the fence at your neighbor and, and he's not a believer and there is no difference in your life or your character, there is something wrong. There is a transformation that God does within us. And he will do it. And it's a lifelong process. It says in Romans 12, 2, how does the process work? It says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you ever wonder what God's will is? A lot of people ask me all the time, Aaron, what's God's will for me in this situation? I'll tell you this, God's will for you is to obey him. That's what his will is. If you trust him, God's word is a lamp to our feet. It doesn't tell you every step. It's not a flashlight, it's a lamp. It says, next step, be obedient. That's why it says, keep my commands and follow them. And then what's the next part? I am the Lord who makes you holy. God is the one who transforms us. But he says, you know what? Just be obedient. Just trust me. Just do what I ask you to do. And guess what? You're just going to stumble into his will for your life. You don't have to worry about it. It'll just be there. That's what happens. And you notice it's a transformation. It's not an instant thing. You know, there's going to be things in your life. You're going to realize that you're going to start becoming a more loving person or a kind person or a patient person or a pure person or a good person, right? There are things that are going to happen in your life that you didn't even earn, but that God's going to transform you. But you, your job is just to be faithful. Keep his commands and follow them. Just trust that he's going to change you. That's faith in action. That's sanctification. But aren't you glad that this process doesn't last forever? That's the third one we get to look to. It. It's called glorification, and it will happen. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. Ooh. Not, not, we will not all sleep. That's talking about dying, by the way. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Isn't that awesome? What does that mean? It says in Scripture that we're going to see the Lord as He is because He will make us like Him. Not that we're going to be God, but we're going to be pure, finally pure. Right? That change in your heart, your life, it's going to happen. Jesus is coming back. And when it happens, boom, you will be completely glorified. It's coming. And until that day comes, we, we continue to let God transform us. Because He is the God who makes us holy. That's who He is. So what we learn today? Well, Yahweh and Kadesh, that's, that's an amazing thing that God is the Holy One. We have to recognize that, that, that God demands holiness because he is a holy God. We cannot treat him as common. We must not treat him as common. We can't defile him with how our lives are by, by, by bringing in all kinds of other fake religions and all kinds of stuff like that. God, we says, follow him, follow Jesus. And we can't be holy in and of ourselves. God is the one who has to do it because we recognize that God is the holy maker. It's what he does. He makes times holy. He makes spaces holy. He makes things holy. And he makes people holy too. He can even make you holy. That's what he does. Last thing he recognizes how they do it because Jesus is Yahweh Amkadesh. There is no other one who can do this. Jesus is the way. He is the one who sets the part. He is the one who makes us holy. It's what, how God revealed it in the scripture. It's not how I would have invented it. But I'm grateful that God showed me how it actually is. What a gift. And so Jesus makes us holy starting with our justification. He made the way for our sin. 
so you can be saved by God's grace through faith. He is working with us. The Holy Spirit is in you right now, if you are a believer, who is transforming you. Just take steps of faithfulness, and he will grow his fruits in your life. And then Jesus is coming back, and we will be changed. He will glorify us too. We can trust him. So how do you put this to practice? Because anytime we see God's word and then we don't do anything about it, it says that we're stupid. So I invite you to live an intelligent faith. Take out your connection card on the back. I have some ideas, some things that you can do to take some steps to put this, apply this to your life because it's a very practical thing. The first thing that maybe you want to do this week is say, this week I commit to. All right, maybe this week is you want to memorize Leviticus 20 verse 8. Act different. I'll tell you what, this is a separate kind of thing. People who aren't followers of Jesus very rarely know God's word. But you can, and it is powerful, and it will diffuse the enemy's attacks. So I encourage you, know this, so that way you can begin to live your life and trust God and enjoy the benefits of of being his people. The second thing you might want to do is you might want to read Romans chapters 1 through 10. Actually, why don't you just go through 12? We talked about it a little bit, and it's only a couple more verses. Romans 1 through 10 talks about the process of how God justifies us and sanctifies us. It's a very interesting, it's powerful stuff. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. If you've read it before, read it again because it's good to have the reminder. We could be doing that this week. How about this? Maybe what you need to do is be disciple. If you look in your life and you say, you know what? I am no different than my neighbor or my employee who doesn't know the Lord. I am no different today than I was a year ago. It's not that God's power isn't enough. It's more than enough. The reason is there's a process that tells us in the New Testament how God sanctifies us, that transformation. There's a process that God tells us that we're supposed to do. It's to be discipled. What that means is have another Christian who is just a little bit further on their walk with the Lord than you are, that comes one-on-one, that gets to know you, and spends time with you and helps you grow in your faith. That's how it happens. They help you explain scripture. You talk about your doubts. You go through those kinds of things. You are discipled. You're learning to follow Jesus. And if you don't have that and you look in your life and you're like, you know what? I am not growing. I'm just being honest. I'm saved. I'm justified, but I'm not growing. You need to be discipled. That's what the scripture says. So for you, if you are willing to be discipled, and that's why I'm not, you have to be willing. There is a, there is a cost to it. It's going to cost your time. It's going to cost commitment. It's going to cost some humility because you have somebody that's going to be able to, to let them look into your life and say, this is how you grow. But if you're open to that, let me know. Because one of the things we do at this church is we are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus, and we will help you grow. But that leaves a second part. Maybe what you need to do is to be a discipler. Because it's not just that, that we're to grow. It says in Scripture that those disciples come from somewhere. They come from God's people. If you've been walking with Jesus for more than one day, you are qualified to be a discipler. All you have to do is a discipler. You don't have to tell people how to get to Jesus. You can just tell them this is how you can come as far as I've come in following Jesus. That's all you've got to do. If you're willing to love another person and help them grow in their faith, to invest in them, what's one of the greatest things for you growing closer to Christ, but also helps. You know, we have a lot of baby Christians right now. Isn't that awesome? And we should always. But we all need to be growing. If you want to help and you want to be a discipler, let us know. And this is what we're going to do. I'll, I'll meet with you. We'll give you some tools. You're going to get a lot of support as you go through this process. And you're not going to do it perfectly, but, you're, but God's going to be with you, and he will be adequate in you. If you want to do that, make that commitment. I'll tell you, if you're here this morning and you have not followed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you haven't been justified yet. That very first set of sanctification, God can make you holy, and he wants to. That's what Jesus came for. And if that's to you, this is what I want you to do. The first thing is let me know. Here it says, I want more information about starting a relationship with Jesus. And then give me your information on here. Make sure you have that in print so I can get it. But also, I'm going to be standing there in the back. And before you leave today, I want you to come and talk to me. This is too important to leave to just chance. Don't leave today without experiencing the joy of God making you holy. 
and I'll help you. I'll answer your questions, and we'll help start that process so you can begin and have a relationship with this God who makes us holy. All right, so make your commitments and also put your prayer request down because we talk to God, and he answers because he's real. And then here in a minute, we're going to take our offering. And to take our offering, take these connection cards, please, and put them in the offering basket as is passed. Before we do that, would you please join me as we uh, pray for these, consecrate our commitments and our tithes and offerings to the Lord. Let's do. Father God, you are good. You are powerful. You are righteous. But above anything else that we could say, Father, you are holy. You are different, and we're grateful for that. You're bigger than our brains could ever be. We will never plumb your depths, and yet... You invite us to relationship and you make us holy. Thank you. Father, today we've seen in your word how, who you are and how you do this. Thank you for not leaving us on our own, that you do this transformation in us. I pray that you would transform this body of Christ that you have redeemed. Make us holy. Help us to represent you to this community well. Father, may your light shine to every corner of Estes Park as your love penetrates every heart. Father, may no one in this community live in ignorance of who you are. Work in us, Lord, and all the other churches here that worship you as well. Father, we've made commitments today. I pray that you would work in those, that you would uh, transform those actions from legalism, Father. Instead, may they just be acts of faith, inviting you to do that part, make us holy. And Father, for our commitments that we make and our, and our tithes and our offerings, Lord, taking that portion that you have already set aside and then more if you've called us to, Father. I pray that you would sanctify those, Father, that for the building of your kingdom. And Father, in this, that you would receive glory in this church, in this community, in the world. Lord, we pray all of this in the powerful, beautiful name of our Yahweh, Amkadish Jesus. Amen.